Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome the Harvard head lacrosse coach, Devin Wills. Devin was a three-time All-American at Dartmouth, led Dartmouth to the championship game in 06, was a U.S. national team goalie for 10-plus years, won championships, has coached at USC, Denver, and Dartmouth, and is an original Coloradan. That's right. Well, thank you for having me. I'm pumped to be here. Yeah, yeah cool. I'm Great. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. Devin, please, the way I sort of talk about most of these, um, the way I do a lot of these podcasts is sort of talk about your coaching journey and your playing journey. Maybe you can just... Tell us where it all began and, and how you got into coaching and, and the mentors that you had along the way. Um, yeah, well, my, my uh, playing career started in Colorado, um, and it was kind of during that time when Colorado was still growing and developing. And um, luckily, I had a, like a friend whose dad owned Lax World, and that was like the only lacrosse store probably in the West, and it was kind of like an anomaly. Um, and he started a little youth league, and so... Um, he, his daughter and I played in that and she was a field player and I was a goalie and um, it kind of just took off from there. And then, um, you know, I Mark went to Foster. what's that? Mark Foster. Yeah, that's him. Yeah. So he was, he lived like right around the block from me. So like, honestly, like he really was like, he spearheaded like lacrosse in Colorado in a lot of ways. Um, right. So he, he was great. Um, and so then, you know, his daughter and I went to different high schools. We were kind of like rivals forever. Um, I ended up going to Dartmouth and then um, playing with the U.S. team for a while. And I think uh, I was a big ice hockey player for most of, like, my childhood. And I think meeting, um, like, Daniel Gallagher, uh, she was in Colorado at the time being, like, a ski bum. And she played for the U.S. team, and she would come down to Denver from Steamboat and train with Susan Stewart, who's at Colorado College, and she was the goalie yeah. for Team Canada. So they would get together and play, and, like, they just kind of, like, asked me to come sometimes and then, you know, I'm like in ninth grade or whatever, and Danielle's like shooting on me and she's like one of the best attackers in the world. So pretty quick that I like got the lacrosse bug kind of just from being around those two and just how much they loved it. Um, and, you know, Danielle and Stewie are still like two of my very good friends, even to like this day, which is crazy. They're like some of my like longest friendships at this point, even though there's like such an age gap. <laughs> Um, but, um, and then, you know, when I went to college, um, obviously like I met other people and different mentors kind of helped me change my style or, you know, kind of think about the game a little bit differently and had a bunch of different coaches through the U S team and they were all great. And, um, you know, I think you just kind of pick little pieces from each one of them and kind of try to like develop your own style. And, um, so, you know, I think 
Danielle and Stewie were probably like the two that really started me off into like loving lacrosse and switching over from hockey. But, um, you know, Jessica Wilk was the goalie on the U.S. team when I started and she was phenomenal and kind of took me under her wing a little bit, which was great. That's awesome. Well, Mark Foster, um, I remember him well, um, and he, he was responsible. I agree for the growth in many ways. There's a, a few different people that I think were responsible for the growth in Colorado, but Mark was definitely one of them. And the whole Red Hawks organization and the yeah. way grew. Because um, if you recall, you know, I got to Denver in the summer. You probably don't know when the date was, but I got there in the summer of 1998 to be the head okay. coach at Denver. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Mark, so you're, you know, you're probably like, you know, seventh grader at the time. And, and Mark, you know, was probably about that age. And I just remember, you know, Mark and Jamie Duke and all of these uh, yep. various uh, folks that really were instrumental in the growth of youth lacrosse. And I was obviously paying a little bit closer attention to men's lacrosse. But when you grew up, was well, how many how many women's or girls programs were there? And did you play some boys lacrosse along the way too? Yeah, I always played um, with the boys in their indoor winter leagues, um, just because there wasn't one our team needed a, a goalie and then there just wasn't a ton of women's lacrosse winter leagues um so i mean there were probably i don't know the exact number but there wasn't a ton and there wasn't as many as there are now but it was kind of like creek kent ca um i went to ca those were kind of like the three that were the, the strongest at the time but then there were other ones that like started to to get stronger like arapaho east um they were all starting to kind of like blossom a little bit, like kind of right when I was leaving. Yeah. Well, CAs, Creek are still the best. Yeah. Um, as I told you, I'm coaching at Thunder Ridge, so we're going after them. Yeah, exactly. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then you ended up um, choosing Dartmouth and, um, you know, what you obviously, Dartmouth's had a great, a great history of women's lacrosse. Um, t- talk to us a little bit about what you learned there, um, you know, who your coaches were and what you sort of, what, how they mentored you. Yeah, I think, you know, going to Dartmouth was um, kind of, I think, a surprise decision for for some people to think about. Um, you know, I wanted to go somewhere where, like, the education and the academics were, like, balanced. Um, it also reminded me a lot of Colorado, so that was something that kind of felt like a little bit of home. Um, but I also wanted to go somewhere where I was going to get coached. Um, and for some reason, Amy Patton was my coach there, and she, like, really loved working with goalies and um, you know, we definitely butt heads at times, but it was, um, I think in a good way. And she kind of helped me see some like different ways of playing and kind of helped me calm down a little bit in the cage, as opposed to kind of being like this, like wild out of the cage player. Um, so I think, um, you know, my time there was great. I think it was one of those things that we, um, you know, the Ivy league is so strong, um, every year. It's just, it's always one of the toughest conferences. So I just feel like that helped me kind of grow throughout my career, just kind of, you know, through those games and kind of those lessons. Cause you know, it's different with the Ivies. You only get to play each other, you know, really, at least back then, you know, one time. Um, and, you know, that really determines who goes to the NCAAs and um, you know, that, that one game can really have a big impact on kind of the rest of your season. So, um, you know, it's not something that you can kind of take lightly. And I think like with the Ivies, there's like just a totally different, level of like rivalry and pride just because of all the school traditions and you know typically your rivals are all the same as all the other sports so everybody kind of has that same um like intensity towards each other um you know just like kind of across the athletic department 
So you coached at uh, Dartmouth also for a couple of years after you graduated. So you mm-hmm. just came on the staff as a second assistant or a volunteer or something, or how did mm-hmm. that? Yeah, there was um, one of our coaches was having a baby, so she was stepping aside for like maternity leave. So they asked me to stay, and um, it was great. You know, it was a good introduction and like a huge learning curve just about how everything was done and strategy and everything like that. And you know, this was before, you know, like film breakdown and all that kind of stuff was done on computers. Like it was all done on like this weird machine and yeah. it was awful and VHS tapes and DVDs. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've come a long way. <laughs> well, I mean, there's been so much change in technology from the time that you kind of entered college till now, but there's also been, and this is an interesting topic, but so much change in women's lacrosse from a rules perspective and a stick technology perspective mm-hmm. um i mean i'm not sure when the rule came about when you know but you know restraining line seven on seven and, and out of bounds you know right. i mean that's pretty massive what is yeah. that like um as you sort of watch the game evolve yeah i mean so 77 was there before i got into college but the restraining line or no um the out of bounds happened going into my senior year so it was like we were in the final four my junior year and you know we were playing northwestern and there were times where like the ball would just launch out of bounds but they had these two girls that were like so fast that they could just chase it and like get the ball back you know like there was no consequence there was no change of possession um so then that switch was huge because i felt like if that had happened my junior year we could have been a little bit better um but uh yeah i mean it's fun to see how the game's growing you know it's like it's exciting for, I think, the fans. Um, it's exciting for the growth of the game. I think, you know, there's still going to be changes that continue to happen um, as it evolves. And it's evolving in every area. You know, like you mentioned the sticks. But, I mean, even, like, in the rules, um, yeah. you know, if there's a way that we want to start merging closer towards, like, how the men have their rules or if there's ways, that, you know, like the Olympic style that is, everybody's talking about where it's basically, like, a completely different game. Um, you know, I think everybody's really starting to get excited about like the evolution of the game and where it could go. And um, I think all of that technology is just increasing the talent pool of all the players. Like the high school kids are just so good now. Like there's, they're just phenomenal. Um, I think they get a lot of that stuff from social media and they're learning from watching other people. And, you know, that avenue wasn't there when I was growing up necessarily. So a lot of these players, they're watching boys do stick tricks and they can figure out ways to do it you know, with a girl stick. And, um, you know, I just think that overall the sport is just growing so much and um, it's exciting to be a part of. Yeah, no doubt. So you made, you made a move to the University of Denver uh, as an assistant coach after Dartmouth and before USC. How was that experience? And what did you learn there? They obviously, I le- I'd left Denver maybe a year or two before you got there, um, but they obviously had a legendary staff on the men's side and Liza Kelly on, you know, being the head coach. What did you what did you learn from that experience? Um, you know, I think the it was way different. Um, you know, I think Liza and Amy Patton are probably like two polar opposite style coaches. So um, it was good for me, I think. Um, you know, I kind of left Dartmouth not knowing if I wanted to coach, um, to be honest. And, um, you know, it wasn't from anything in my experience there. It was just kind of you know, sometimes there's pressures from having graduated from an Ivy school that you got to do finance. So I took a finance job. And then like two days before I was supposed to start, I was like, I cannot do this. Um, and so I called Liza and she had me come volunteer and it was great. And I, th- I feel like 
her passion for the game like really helped me um, like realize that I did want to coach um, and that like it was okay to just really have fun with the team and um, kind of really focus on that relationship piece a little bit because I do think that's something that she's really strong with is you know she's great as a coach and X's and O's and strategy but I also think that she's very good at relating to the players and having relationships um, and so that was something I definitely learned from her. Um, and I also learned from her, like, you can have discussions, you know, you can argue as assistants or, you know, you can have differences of opinions, but, you know, at the end of the day, you just have to know why and then have an open mind. And I feel like she's somebody that really embraces that mentality. And so that was something I really learned from her. Yeah, that's awesome. And then, um, and then Lindsay Mundy takes a job at USC and then brings you on. Is that how that chronology went? Yeah, she had kind of taken the job and she was out there by herself. Um, so we started the program and then we had like a year prior um, to like do some recruiting and we had a yeah. few kids on campus. So she was even there before all that. So we were at a U.S. event and she was like, you know, are you interested? And I was like, yeah. And, you know, I went for an interview and, um, you know, it's it's great. You know, USC is an amazing place and an amazing athletic department and, you um, you know, it was kind of like a no-brainer, and um, you know, starting a program was a, a great experience. Um, you know, it's something special to say that you like know every single kid that's ever gone through the program, um, or like recruited every single one of them. So it's definitely like a different type of ownership. But you know, there was a time where we had thirty freshmen and sophomores, and that was a lot of freshmen and sophomores. <laughs> what? Uh, how long did it take you guys to sort of crack the uh, top twenty, make the NCAA tournament? Though? Um, we made the NCAAs in our third year, I think. Um, but then it was our fourth year and I think it was kind of, you know, we had to have, it was like our very first, like truly recruited class. They were seniors and that year, um, we, you know, I think that was like 2015 or 26, 2016. We went undefeated, um, until the elite eight when we lost in overtime to Syracuse. Um, and that was just like a really special group to be a part of. Um, they, clearly had chosen USC to like build a program and to like create a tradition and a culture and um, to, you know, they wanted to do a lot of things and, you know, they set out to do it and they were probably the most humble group of kids and, you know, they weren't necessarily like the top recruits in the world and, but they found ways to make it happen and they were like so connected and they were so much fun. It was one of those things like when we lost, it wasn't really that we lost and we were like so upset that we, you know, was where our season was over, but it was more like we were just sad, like we couldn't hang out with them anymore. Yeah. So they were great. Um, and I honestly think like our success that year, like truly had nothing to do with the coaches. It was just the players and it was something that they knew exactly what to do and we could kind of just let them go. Um, so that was something that, you know, you don't have experiences like that really that often as a coach. No, those are special. I agree. It's just like the, just like there's something, something about certain groups. Yeah. Now, what would what did you learn from Coach Monday? Like, what you know, Lindsey Monday is obviously a great player in Northwestern. Co coached there for a lot of years. I've, I don't know her very well. I've just heard a lot of great things, and I would how great player she was. And I think you probably played on a world national teams with her. But what was she like as a coach, and what did you learn from her? You know, I think the thing with Lindsay, she just understands the game so well, and um, she's a student of the game through and through. So she was great, just in understanding kind of. Like, like a different approach, um, you know, like she came from Northwestern where things were very orchestrated and very, you know, X's and O's and play oriented. And 
um, you know, I think she had a lot of that and she was so creative in the stuff that she could come up with um, that I think that was something that I really learned from her. But my experience with her was amazing and it was really collaborative, which was awesome um, that it kind of felt like we were both working for it together. Um, even though that she was like the head coach, she really listened to my opinion and she was amazing. And, um, you know, I think for her, it's definitely helped me you know, kind of look at the game differently and like a little bit smarter and, you know, everybody's trying to take that next step and come up with that like next idea. And I think she's kind of that, that person that kind of gets the wheels turning in everybody's heads a little bit. So the zone that you guys ended up playing out there, is that something that was a collaborative, you know, invention on the, on, on the side on both of you guys, or how did you guys come up with that? Yeah. Uh, you know, the year we started it, um, we, had a, a pretty big injury to one of our main middies and um we kind of lost a lot of speed when she went down um so it, we decided to go do it for the mpsf championship just kind of to surprise stanford a little bit um wow. and the girls really bought into it um and it was kind of just because we didn't have the speed necessarily um and it actually was good i mean we lost the the championship game but um I think it was good and we still ended up making the NCAA tournament that year and um, we ran it against JMU um, and beat them and then we ran it against Duke and I think, you know, our girls were just gassed at that point and, um, you know, we'd flown to Duke to play them. So it was just kind of a lot, but um, it was kind of a decision like, let's do this because we don't have speed that we did. Um, and just kind of making that adjustment. And then, you know, the following year, it was kind of the same thing. We're like, well, they were so good at that zone when, you know, it was, we'd only practiced it for like a week. Let's try it again. And they all just really bought into it and they loved it. And I think they all like really appreciated like having rules and like jobs within a, a zone. Um, it also rested our middies because they got to stand still for parts of it. So um, there were, there was a lot of benefits to it. And then, Again, I think it was kind of a little bit newer at the time. So a lot of opponents that we were playing hadn't seen it. Um, so it kind of worked to our advantage that way. It was, people were still kind of trying to figure out what we were doing and how to mimic it and how to practice against it. So at that time, it was definitely like a little bit um, more innovative, I'd say. But now it's kind of starting to catch on. So people are trying to figure it out, <laughs> I would say. Totally. Well, and I also think that like, you know, um, women's lacrosse, is, is such a game of speed that when all of a sudden you make players play slower and have to play with switches and in gaps and, mm -hmm. and doing sort of more man up type of things that you just don't see as often in women's across as you would say in box across or men's across. Right. I think the game is going that direction, but it probably takes a little bit of advantage of that. Yeah. And it also, you know, like with men, there's like the outside shooting element that people weren't necessarily trying to use, but now I think people are. So like you are getting like more shooting space calls with it. Um, so again, I think people are kind of starting to adapt a little bit more to zones um, just across division, like all women's across. Um, I just think there's more zones now there's different types of zones. So I think people are getting a little bit more comfortable with it. Um, so again, it's kind of like, let's get back to the drawing board a little bit. Yeah. Well, so now you're the head coach at uh, Harvard. Congrats on that. You took the job last summer and, um, you know, unlike USC where you got a chance to sort of build a culture from scratch. Now you have to build a, you know, build a culture in your vision, but for the, 
for the kids vision too. It's a little bit different. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you, how you go about doing that? Yeah, I'd almost say like building a culture at USC was a little bit easier um, in a sense, just because like there were, there was nothing. So like we were almost the upperclassmen, we were almost building the culture um, at the time. And then here, you know, while we were trying to like rebuild it or like instill something different, like we got to break, break other mentalities a little bit. And I think, you know, everybody knows it's harder to break habits. Um, so, you know, I think we're just trying to put the, the team into positions where, you know, they feel empowered. Um, they feel like, you know, the work they're doing is paying off. Um, maybe asking them to do things that they weren't necessarily used to doing before um, to kind of try to see how that payoff is going to happen. Um, but again, I think when, until we got here, we didn't really necessarily know exactly, you know, how we wanted to change things. And as the years kind of progressed, we've gotten to understand the, the players a little bit more and they've understood us as coaches a little bit more. Um, so I think it's a work in progress for sure. Um, and it's, it's something that we kind of have to have patience with. Um, but I think we're taking steps in the right direction for sure. And, um, you know, the greatest thing was they were so energetic and so excited. Um, and I think they were just so excited for change um, in general. So I think, you know, that made our job pretty easy. Um, and so I think the second year, it's kind of like, okay, well, these are the standards. And like now everybody's got to kind of buy into that. You know, it's, it's a little bit harder now. Um, and, you know, everybody's got to kind of be willing to trust it again. What are some of your standards that you've tried to uh, implement? Um, you know, I think just part of it is like just how we kind of treat each other, um, you know, trying to get rid of any sense of entitlement, any sense of hierarchy in the locker room. Um, you know, everybody does everything. We're not having the freshmen carry the balls every day. You know, we want to make sure everybody's kind of sharing that load. Um, but then also kind of giving them um, a say in kind of what they want and, you know, having them set those standards so that, you know, it's their team and that they are the ones that, you know, you can't just say, you know, I have to do it. And so make sure you set something that is something that you can actually live by. Um, so again, like every team's different. Um, you know, we got a whole new class coming in and a whole new captain, you know, pick for this next year. So I think that's going to be the biggest thing is, you know, everybody's got to kind of set the standards together, um, you know, and we can help direct them, but at the same time, like they need to make sure that they are, you know, choosing something that they want to uphold and that they want to like see move forward and, um, you know, what traditions they want to continue with and what traditions that, you know, they want to create. The Philocrosophy podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son must utilize video to learn his game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3video.com. So we were talking a lot about you know, how much the game um, women's across is, has and continues to evolve, as all games do, really. Um, but um, I want to talk about that specifically as it relates to your um, philosophies on player development and, and how you develop skill and how you develop um, IQ. Um, because I feel like in many ways women's lacrosse is very different than girls lacrosse because of the way that it's officiated probably mostly. Um, and there's just so much to learn. I was just curious sort of how you view that and how you go about it. 
I think we try to start like the fall is pretty much like fundamentals and trying to teach the basics. Um, you know, like at the Ivies, we're kind of limited with our time um, compared to the rest of Division One. So we have to be really, really smart in how we do that and maybe like creative in how we frame conditioning um, to kind of simulate, you know, defensive footwork or whatever. Um, but we really try to just focus on the fundamentals. And I think right now, um, you know, a lot of that is going to come down to like stick work, but like stick work at speed, um, you know, because anybody can go out and play wall ball, you know, like it's great when there's the walls there and there's no defender and you're standing still. Um, but I think we're trying to kind of push that to having kind of like a stick work plan that's a little bit more progressive, that's a little bit more inventive and a little bit more like mobile um, than than normal. But, you know, for us, it's like, again, like teaching, teaching, I think, you know, we, even though we ran a zone in the spring, like we're always going to do a man in the fall, because if you're a good 1v1 defender, you're going to be good in the zone. So, you know, it's kind of like making sure that those basics are there. I think, you know, with shooting and stick work, like all of that stuff is so important now, because I think, you know, you just don't have the time to like necessarily teach shooting and stick work in the spring. So you got to really knock that out in the fall and make sure that they have a good understanding of what you're looking for like right off the bat. Um, so again, like we just try to kind of teach the fundamentals. Like it might be the exact same as high school, but it's going to be a lot faster and they just need to be able to anticipate. Um, where I think in high school, you kind of get away with, you know, the ball moves a lot slower. You can see what's going to happen and you can move. So like the anticipation, I think is the X factor that, you know, takes you from like high school to, to college. Well, and, and also the physicality of defense, right? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. Women's lacrosse, it's it's a very physical game. Um, seems like you should be wearing arm pads with the cross checks. The <laughs> but um, but when you look at girls lacrosse, you know, it's sort of just it's it's so hit or miss as to what you're allowed to do. But generally, you're not allowed to get your stick horizontal and cross check. Therefore, from a dodging perspective, learning how to be a physical offensive player, learning how to make a move and initiate contact into your man. Yep. It's so important. Um, so could you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah, I think it just girls naturally are reluctant to make contact first. Um, I think it happens like even on like the draw circle, like I think you have to be willing to make that contact to then get your space. And I think a lot of times girls are a little bit hesitant to do that because it's not something that people talk about, I think, at the younger ages. Um, so I think that is a huge piece. I think that relates to like basically everything, you know, it's cutting up you know, to get open for the ball, to dodging, everything like that. I think that's huge. Um, you know, for us, like for our defenders, we really try to make sure that they're not trying to make contact, that they're just trying to like focus on their footwork. Um, because again, like you never know with refs, like how they're going to call it. You know, they might call, you know, there's just so much gray area with our officiating that, you know, having contact is almost going to just set you up for failure. Or if you can teach a smart attacker how to use that contact against their defender, you're going to get a lot farther. And, you know, Becca Block is one of my assistant coaches. She's one of the best defenders in the game. She does not reach for contact. You know, like she'll make contact, but the attacker's got to make it first. She's just going to, you know, play good footwork um, or close that space when she, when she can with her stick, not like reaching for it. Because I think that's where a lot of times you see defenders just getting burned is that they're just stopping their feet and they're reaching. So, um, you know, I think it goes both ways. You know, I think that attacker needs to learn how to like use that contact and push off of it to get their hands free for a shot. But then I also think defenders need to recognize 
it's about speed. You know, it's basketball style defense. It's not necessarily going to be putting your stick in their ribs all the time, you know, because you're just going to set yourself up for failure. Interesting. So um, when you are teaching one-on-ones, what sort of like uh, progression that you would use? Um, well, defensively, like we try to, we like take away their sticks first and just try to almost play like rabbit mirror um, style defense. Um, or forcing to a certain area and like how to step up, how to drop step. So it's like, you know, almost like using like cornerback footwork from like football, um, like in those drills. So like, you, you know, you can find a ton of those. And then I think offensively, it's just kind of like focusing on different ways to dodge. Um, and it's whether it's like using your shoulders, whether it's using your head, but you know, defenders aren't typically watching your stick, you know, so they're watching your hips, they're watching your shoulders. So it's trying to implement ways to, you know, like kind of get comfortable doing like almost dramatic movements with the rest of your body to get a defender to shift. Um, and then, you know, obviously like just footwork and change of speed, change of direction is huge. You know, I think as women, they're very, we're very used to just going in a straight line. And I think it's very, um, special when you can find like an attacker or a defender that has got really great lateral footwork. Um, and you know, that's when you've got somebody you can stop and start and, dodge in a small space as opposed to like dodging in the midfield you know it's just two very different moves all around one of the things i've been thinking a lot about lately and with women's lacrosse and because like since i'm coaching girls lacrosse and and i think this is really true in men's lacrosse too is the idea of post-ups you know in basketball you can't be a great guard if you can't don't have a post-up game because you're just not going to always be able to face the basket and get to the basket you slow down because you're going to get collapsed upon and, right. and all the great guards end up being able to do that. And if you look at um, women's lacrosse with, with, with how, you know, the eight is pretty tight with seven, seven players. And all of a sudden, if you are always going to rely on speed, you're going to end up running into the next defender or next right. player a lot. And, and I look at players like, I don't know, probably my all time favorite player to watch women's lacrosse is Kayla trainer and the way she, She's, she can square up and face up and split you, but she also can post you up right. and moves where she's, you can't really slide to her because she can pop a feed off, Right. but you can't, you know, and it's, and, and I just was wondering if, to me, I think it's an amazing opportunity in women's lacrosse to learn how to actually slow down, literally stop running, yeah. shuffle and pivot to see if you can keep your head up, fake passes and be able to uh, penetrate when a defense is sort of um, packed in. Do you have any, right. any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it. Like, you have to be able to go, like, slow to fast, then to slow again. You know, I think in, as attackers, like, you're told to just run or, like, cut through, create space, like, go, 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 play at speed. It's like, yeah, you want to play at speed, but you need to know the times when you need to slow down and when that can also create something. And I think with the Kayla – she's got this stick work that she can literally stand still yeah. and still shoot around you, still like toy with you. You know, she's going to use that contact against you if you push into her too hard. If you send a slide, yeah, she's got the stick work to dump a feet off. So I think with a player like that, like you almost make a game plan around one kid as opposed to the whole team. Um, but I think that's exactly right. Like you need to know how to work a small space. And I think that's, you know, when you watch Kayla, her stick's far away from her body, but she's using her body to get around that defender. You know, she's not doing some fancy stick twirl or whatever to make her dodge. She's using her body. And I think that's where, again, like, you got to make sure you can go side to side 
to then one quick step, like you're not going to have seven yards to get full speed. You know, I think that's like the difference between, you know, recognizing how you want to attack, whether it's a big sweep at speed. Yeah, that's one thing, but then that's not always going to happen because defenders are just starting to get better and better that that's not always going to be the case. So you got to find people who can, you know, shimmy and, and dodge, you know, in a one, like a one yard by one yard box. Um, and I think like a Kayla is exactly somebody who can do that. Totally. You know, it's interesting because like, you know, watching, you know, I'm up in Canada right now and I, I, you know, I watch a lot of box up here, boys, men's box, girls box. Um, and one of the things that you learn in box across is like, is that you, you can't long dodge because you'll run into everybody. So right. you have to tight yep. your man. You got to engage your man pull your man to you. And I think that in women's lacrosse, when everyone, if, if you're playing against a defense that's pressuring you, you can, you can do whatever you want and just use your speed. But when they pack it in, if you initiate your move from outside the 12 and the defense is picking you up at the eight, you know, everyone's going to see it coming and they're going to get, you know, essentially a seven or eight, if not double that um, right. um, head start on you and taking, I've, I really feel like one of the most impactful skills that I've sort of noticed from watching a lot of box. And I'm starting to see it happen a lot in men's lacrosse too, and I see it in women's lacrosse, but it's just this ability to crowd your man more like a guard in basketball, where you're getting as close, like Kyrie Irving, getting as close as you can, opposed to taking a long run. Um, and I was curious about your thoughts on that. I think, you can, yeah, I think you can like do that as a defender if you're able to like step off when they start to turn the corner on you. You know, I think. Like with us, a lot of times girls just rely on their sticks to stop somebody um, instead of, you know, when somebody's starting to push into you and roll around you, that you got to have that release and step off and get your space again. Um, so I think that's definitely something that is done probably a little bit tighter to the eight meter and like on the seams. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of times girls just try to use their sticks to stop somebody and then that attacker just rolls right through it. You know, like your arms are never going to be as strong as your legs. So you know, kind of that release and beat him to that spot is huge. Cool. Um, talk to me a little bit about your thoughts of two-man game. In men's lacrosse over the last 10 years, two-man game with the box across influence has been massive. And in women's lacrosse, it's, 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 it's coming uh, into being more popular um, as well. Um, I think mostly because, you know, the efficiencies say that, you know, playing a two-man game gives you some higher shooting percentages. At least that's the case with the MLL stats that uh, migrate friendly great Dave Huntley got on MLL stats on about 10,000 shots they 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 found that two man game was a higher efficiency than isolation hmm. um, probably for a lot of reasons i mean obviously it's it's tougher from a decision making perspective but also there's fewer players you know to slide and help once you have to slide and help um, and i was curious what your thoughts and philosophies were as it relates to that in women's cross and specifically at Harvard yeah, I think it's uh, definitely growing in the women's game um, a bit more. Uh, I think for us, it's, yeah, you know, doing a two-man game is is great. I think that's where you got to find, like, players that have, like, the chemistry to work together. And, you know, it's got to be something that you, like, kind of work on tirelessly. And then, then you got to be strategic in how you put people next to them. Um, because, you know, as it does start to get scouted and, and starts to get um, – you know, defensive plans start to come up against them. You know, it might be that the second slide is there early to help with the two man, but then it's like that next person that has got to be somebody that you trust with the ball and trust the shot. So I think it's definitely growing. I think it's actually helping make the, the game better. 
Um, I, you know, I know Northwestern did a ton of it and you're kind of starting to see a bunch of other teams do it as well. And like the high school level is definitely doing it a, a lot. Um, you know, I think the only negative to it is, you know, sometimes it just kind of highlights just two players. Um, but at the same time, like if those two players can get it done, you know, why not? So, um, you know, I think it's, it's something that I think a lot of teams are starting to do a little bit more. And I think this coming year, there's going to be a lot more two mans, um, just because I think everybody learns from each other. And like I said, you saw a lot of that from, you know, the, the Northwesterns and, um, you know, a lot of, you know, USC did a bunch. So I think it's definitely a, a growing trend. Boston College did a fair amount of it too. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, cool. Um, last question as it relates to just overall philosophies is, is just what, what would you say your defensive philosophy is and, um, you know, how is that continuing to evolve? Um, you know, our philosophy just kind of depends on who we have, um, you know, and you have to kind of be willing to adjust um, based off of your personnel. Um, like I said, we're, we are big on like not reaching for contact, um, you know, kind of trying to play defense with our feet a little bit more. Um, you know, I think as much as we can try to take uh, the decision making out of it, like with the two man, you know, are you always switching? Are you always staying, um, you know, and putting yourself in a position where you can trust everybody 1v1 um, so that if it is something, you know, like with everybody switching or everybody staying, like matchups are really hard to maintain through an entire game. So, um, you know, I think it's got to be build that 1v1 defense first and then kind of build that off-ball defense awareness because a lot of times you've got players just standing the wrong direction. They don't see the ball. They don't turn the right way. You know, there's a lot of like small intricacies that you don't think are a big deal, but they really add up. So I think for us, it's just trying to like make like a solid foundation of defenders and then kind of make game plans from there. Um, you know, it's hard to kind of go into a year with like, this is what we're going to do. Because um, you have no idea, you know, sometimes they would really buy into a zone. Sometimes they're really going to buy into a man. And it just kind of depends on who you have as your, as your players. And, you know, not only their skill, but kind of like their mentality too. How much do you guys work on, on evens on defense as it relates to, you know, sort of five on four, six on five situations where you really uh, learn how to rotate? Because I feel like that's one of the things that growing up, um, you know, because of the rules, because of the eight meter, because they, you have a tendency to follow your man around that you might get a collapse, but you don't really get this natural understanding of rotating. Um, um, in, in girls lacrosse, but it, it has to happen anytime you play a zone, anytime you slide, anytime you're man down, anytime mm -hmm. it's transition, these things happen. Yeah, I think it's, um, again, like because like the women's game, we don't have like the outside shots as much. I think um, like the way zones kind of play it vary. You know, like there's times where some zones rotate, there's times where some just stay in their zone and some collapse and some yep. really don't. Um, but yeah, I mean, we do a lot. I think we probably do more of it in the fall, um, just because again, like it's trying to teach defenders to see the ball, see each other, see the decision-making because essentially like a double team is a man, man down. So, you know, kind of instilling that in them of like, if you double, the rest of the team needs to know because there's a lot of shifting that happens right behind you. So, you know, we try to make sure that we're not um reinforcing a mentality of like a phantom double where somebody just like ejects and like goes in doubles and like nobody else knows um but yeah we do a lot of that like rotating like 5v4s quite a bit um but you know i think in the last few years um 
you know, just with like transition, I think 5v4s happen a lot more than like 4v3s or even like 3v2s. Um, just because like there's high turnovers and the restraining line and everything like that, um, especially with zones that you kind of really have to practice that like 5v4 situation happening. What, um, do you play D middies or do you guys play two way middies? Um, we do both. We do both. So one line, we have like a couple lines with two pure middies and then one D midi and a midi that run with both. Do you find it's hard to get, get, get uh, O middies off to get your D middies on? Do you feel that you might give up transition that way? And it's um, just sometimes it just kind of depends on the team and um, you know, who it necessarily might be. You know, you want, we try to pick somebody that can get to the box quick um, or somebody that's like on the box side of the field typically. Um, so, I mean, it, it's definitely something that you have to think about for sure. Do you find that playing zone helps you with your man down defense? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I especially say at USC, like our man down defense was almost better than our regular defense, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think you just understand gaps a little bit more from the man down um, from having the zone. Cause you just recognize, okay, that person's not there anymore. Um, it, you know, and, and you kind of just realize your footwork again becomes so much more important. What about when the ball's behind? Um, we talked earlier before the call started about, you know, sometimes you pressure, sometimes you don't. Um, what would you say, you know, what, 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 how do you look at that? you know, uh, as to when you would want to put pressure on back there and when you would want to sort of pack it in and, and give them an opportunity to have, have their hands free and their eyes to feed. Yeah, I think it depends on your opponent a little bit. Um, you know, I think there's some value in that you always do one thing and people really buy into that, um, but you have to kind of adjust to who's back there. And so, you know, if you have somebody who, you know, if they're going to stand really far away, that it's kind of pointless to go pressure them because you're just wasting time to go out and get them then just like let them come to you you know so I think it just kind of depends on the situation and the personnel you know if there's a really great feeder back there that you want them to get rid of the ball go you know if if there's somebody back there that's kind of like a no-name maybe you also want to go because maybe they don't want to handle the ball or deal with the you know pressure so I think it just kind of depends on the game depends on the defenders you know I think it you know it, it, it's just kind of one of those calls that you kind of try to figure out, you know, the mentality of your own kids as well as the mentality of their players. And you get, you, you probably want to be able to do both. Right. So, I mean, it's one of those right. things that being able to dial it up and down is great. And then what do you do if you, if you feel like, all right, I got a pressure, but then this, this player is a good Dodger and all of a sudden, like, how do you help generally? And, and you know, when you're yeah, I think that's really having an athletic goalie is helpful because they can kind of pop out and just like stop somebody for a hot second. Um, you know, I think that's a, that was something big, um, you know, just kind of having the guts to do that. But then again, like that's where 1v1 defense comes in. You know, you got to be a good 1v1 defender, even though you're playing a zone. Yeah, cool. Well, my last, my last topic here is recruiting. Um, recruiting is getting, I don't want to say it's getting easier because it's always hard work, but there's definitely a lot more good players than there's ever been. Um, yeah. Every time you look around, it's just like, you know, unbelievable. These great athletes, but they're also just incredibly slick players. Um, so, what what are you sort of looking for, um, generally speaking, and when you when you're out there on the road recruiting? Yeah, I mean, we can only really talk generally. Um, you know, I love footwork. Um, footwork's great. It's hard to teach footwork, so I think good lateral movement. Um, I think speed is great, but I also want you to be able to stop. 
um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, I think for me, like competitive spirit or the like, killer instinct is huge just because like, again, you can't teach somebody to be competitive. Like you can't teach somebody to like want to win. Um, and I think that's something that is a make or break, uh, you know, of how hard somebody's going to work. So, you know, those are things for me that are, are pretty important that are not teachable. You know, you can teach stick work, you can do all that kind of stuff, but you know, those two things are, are pretty big. Yeah. Now what about position by position? What do you look for in a defender? Same thing. Yeah. I mean, defenders need to have like a little bit, you know, and they have to have good feet. What's that? How do you evaluate, how do you evaluate IQ in a defender? Um, I think you kind of have to look at off ball awareness um, or like how they're moving when they're off ball. You know, are they turning their back? Are they letting their, their attacker slip behind them? You know, are they standing in a good position to slide? You know, I think all of that is kind of an understanding of the game and kind of like what may happen next. And, you know, it's like anticipation. Um, so, yeah, I try to look at kind of like a little bit of what they're doing off ball. Would you rather watch a, a, a athletes that playing uh, in a system where they're pressuring flying around or packed in, or does it not matter to you? Uh, I don't really think it matters. You know, I think there's going to be situations for both. Um, so, you know, I don't really think it matters either way. Yeah. And then offensively, you know, when I think about recruiting, you got to put together a lot of different pieces, you know, you got to have some dodges. You got some, you know, you can't have all seven players be all the same. You know, you need right. lefties, you need lefties, you need, off-ball players, need shooters. Um, what? How do you sort of view that um, by on attack or in the midfield as, as far as those sort of positions within positions? Um, you know, I think it's kind of the same thing, like who's doing the stuff that nobody else wants to do, like going for the ground balls, being gritty, um, on the circle, who's, you know, boxing out, who's cutting through, you know, who's, you know, redefending. You know, there's so many things that you can evaluate attackers and middies on. Um, that has nothing to do with their like stick work or shooting, you know, yes, those things are great. Um, but like, there's also a big part of everything going on off ball that makes or breaks, you know, the success of an attack. So, you know, I kind of try to look at that, um, again, like all the other things are, are great and like, you can definitely teach all that, but, you know, do they understand like how the pace of the game has been going? You know, are they going to fight to get the ball back? You know, if they turned it over, how, what are they going to do? So it's a lot of like that character, those character pieces that I you know, look at. The intangibles. Yeah. Uh, when you're looking at goalies being that it's uh, your position, um, what, uh, what are you looking for in a goalie? Um, you know, usually it's like hand speed. Um, you know, I think, people typically have like fast hands or fast feet. Um, so I think with fast hands, it's great because, you know, even if they're stepping wrong or their feet are a little bit slower, like if they can get their hands the right way, then you can kind of teach them eventually to get their feet to follow those hands and like kind of use their body eventually. But so usually like faster hands, but then like, are they like actually seeing the ball or are they like making the wrong move altogether and just like guessing? So you know, and it's hard to, you know, these tournaments, it's tough. Those kids get thrown into games, you know, after standing or it's been a long day or whatever, and you're not necessarily sure what kind of defense they have in front of them. So it's kind of just looking at like that reaction, you know, are they making the right move is usually a pretty big indicator if they've actually like seen the ball. Yeah. Sometimes when I was, I do these goalie assessments and we actually track like 
did you make the right move regardless of whether the ball went in or missed or right. whatever? Like, yeah. Are you constantly in the wrong direction? Right. Well, what's, I got a question, though. What's so difficult is that, you know, you hear a lot of goalies, goalie coaches talking about, you know, don't guess, wait for the shot. You know, but the fact is, is that you have to read a shooter right. at a time. Um, and how do you find that balance? And then how do you recruit it as far as trying to figure out, like, you know, because guessers are going to get, you know, <laughs> are going to look really good sometimes and look really bad sometimes. But if you just try to sit there and wait for shots, good shooters are going to throw by you because at yeah. certain distances, you're not going to react. So yeah, it's it's hard because you know I think at the next level like if you're guessing you're just putting yourself farther and farther behind or at least if you're like trying to hold and like react you know you're going to adapt to like the speed change at the next level a little bit easier um because at least you are like seeing it and making the right move so eventually hopefully you should catch up to that um so you know it, it is it's hard it's one of those things that you know I think working with somebody is always helpful just to kind of know, you know, what they're seeing, how they're responding to it. Um, so, you, you know, it's one of those things that you kind of have to know the kid too, instead of just like the position, you know, yeah. there's only one of them. So you want to make sure it's like the right one out there. What's your take on, um, on the, the increasing popularity in eight meter shots um, as far as not running them in, but just, you know, like Selena Lasota and just hammering the ball. Saying, yeah, I mean, if you got that skill, you know, why not? Um, you know, I think th that's going to be, you know, I loved it when people did that to me, but I also wasn't looking at a Selena shot. So, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's one of those things that it's going to just depend on like the type of type of goalie you, you have. I think, um, I think it's working. I think sticks are just getting better and better and kids are getting stronger and stronger, but I think eventually goalies are going to start getting better and better too. I mean, you know, Megan Taylor against Lena in the final four, like she kind of had a read on some of those and um, you know, you get a goalie that's quick, it's hard. Um, but again, you know, I think for attackers as defenders get in there and they're getting faster, you know, it's hard to get the shot off. Um, especially now that you always have those two defenders right next to you. So, you know, if you've got the skill to do it, why not? Yeah. It seems like it's at times so hard to get right. in there. <laughs> yeah. Plus, you know, it seems like people are jumping all the time too. So it's like, exactly. it doesn't get called. You just lost what could have been a pretty good shot. If you just had it in your repertoire to just like wind right. up. Right. Uh, yeah. Plus, men's across, I would imagine it's true in women's too. Some some goalies are just better in tight, and some goalies right. are better, you know, on and you know, and worse at high heat, you know, and right. really good in tight. Right. And I mean, Selena's special. Like she's yeah. she's got something she, really special. <laughs> no doubt. She, she yeah. So insane. She shoots deceptively too. Yeah. But, um, cool. Well, Devin, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you um, coming on my podcast and, and talking lacrosse with me. Um, I wish you the best of luck at Harvard and recruiting this summer. Have a great one. And um, thank you. You too. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Thanks, Deb. Of course. The Phil Lacrosse podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 13 week online program is designed to teach cutting edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. 
For more information, go to www.jm3academy.thinkific.com.